Um, let me show you a picture. Uh, this is Malala. Malala. Some of you guys have, you already know about her. She's 16 years old, Pakistani. And she's been an advocate for women's rights and access to education. And she was, as a 16-year-old, nominated for the 12, uh, 2013 Nobel Peace Prize. She didn't win it, but um, it was astounding that she was, uh, as a 16-year-old, nominated. Uh, last week, she appeared on The Daily Show, John Stewart. And there was a moment in the interview. Some, have any of you seen this footage? Anybody? Yeah. A lot of you guys. There was a moment in the interview where John Stewart was left speechless and his jaw dropped. And that in itself is something. As someone was able to do that to him, right? Uh, the story is that she's been an outspoken critic of the Taliban who don't want to provide access to education for women. And Malala had been speaking out against the Taliban. And that when she was 14... A Taliban fighter boarded the bus that she was on, pointed a pistol at her head, and pulled the trigger. How many of you know she survived, made full recovery in England, and has become a transformative figure in human rights? At this moment in the interview, which we're not going to see, um, Stewart asked her how she reacted when she learned that the Taliban wanted her dead, and this was her answer, and I'm going to put it up on the screen. I started thinking, she said, about that. I used to think that the Taleb would come and he would just kill me. But then I said, if he comes, what would you do, Malala? Then I would reply to myself, Malala, just take a shoe and hit him. But then I said, if you hit a Taleb with your shoe, then there will be no difference between you and the Taleb. You must not treat others with cruelty and that much harshly. You must fight others through peace and through dialogue and through education. Then I said, I will tell him how important education is and that I even want education for your children as well. And I will tell him, that's what I want to tell you. Now do what you want. 16 years old. Matthew 5.38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt and hand you over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles Verse 42, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your enemies or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. Because he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. So be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect, 
To which most of us go, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Here's one thing you got to know. You can't just pick up this passage without context and go, wouldn't it be great just to love your enemies? Because it sounds crazy. It will not make any sense. What we have to understand about this text right here is that it's part of a package. And here's the package. Ready? You got to get this. The package is that Christianity is an interconnected set of radically altered relationships. Christianity is an interconnected set of radically altered relationships. What do I mean? A Christian is someone, listen carefully, who has come to a brand new relationship, a radically new relationship with God, first and foremost, Matthew 5, 1 through 10. And what that does then is it begins to bring you into a new relationship with yourself, a radically new attitude towards yourself. And the result then is that you have a radically new attitude and a relationship to the people and to the world around you. They go together. You hear what I just said? If you do not understand that context and package, this will sound ridiculous. But what Jesus is driving at, that's why he even says in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we're talking about, if you have something against a brother or a brother has something against you, he says, don't even bother coming to worship. He's not saying that you're not deserving of coming to worship. He is saying they go together. If you're not in right relationship with a brother or sister, you're not in right relationship with me. They go together. He's saying if you've experienced transformation in your heart as a relationship, a result of a relationship with God, it will result in a radically different relationship with yourself, which then enables you to radically have a different relationship with others. You hear that? You need to understand that. It's a package. It's a context. It's peace. Otherwise, it sounds crazy. Now, let's look at this incredibly difficult to not just understand, but to live out text. And see what Jesus says about loving your enemies. Verse 38. He says, you've heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. (laughs) It's funny how our culture just uses phrases and we don't even know what it means. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. You know what that was? It was a law for judges in court. It was a rule of thumb in the nation of Israel in civil suits. What do I mean? This is a time in which uh, if I came and killed your cow... You didn't turn around and go, you killed my cow, I'm going to kill your cow too. You didn't do that. This is a time in culture in which if I killed your cow, you turn around and you say, what? I'm going to burn your entire farm down. This is a culture in which if you murder my brother, you didn't turn around and go, you murder my brother, I'm going to murder your brother. You turned around and said, I'm going to murder what? Your entire family. So as a rule of mercy, God says to the nation of Israel, we don't take personal vengeance. So when someone wrongs you and I, you don't go, I'm going to poke both of your eyes out. You go, no, no. And I for what? And I and a tooth for tooth. Text Lelionis. It was a merciful rule. To say to the nation Israel, we don't take personal vengeance. Did you know that? <laughs> no, of course not. We go an eye for an eye. We think it's justice. It's the app. Op- God says, we, people of God, are a nation of mercy. 
an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Then Jesus, though, says this, but I tell you, don't resist an evil person. That's not what it means, what you think it means. Uh, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, then turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, there's something that Jesus is not saying and there's something that he is saying. What he is not saying is giving us a more stringent law. That's what we think. What Jesus is not doing is giving us more rules to follow. You know, so it's like, well, I, I know that according to the law, I need to go one mile. But, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus, so I'm going to go two. Uh, I'm supposed to give my shirt, but I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm gonna get... That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not giving us another law, more rules to follow. Why? Laws cannot transform your heart. Laws cannot change your heart. Just because a law is good, let me put it this way, doesn't mean that it's best. Laws can change and affect the person's behavior. Laws can change the person's, uh, on how they conform to certain laws. But laws don't have the power to change a person's heart. There are limitations to laws. Laws are good to put hedges around vengeance, to put barriers around vengeance. But uh, what a law cannot do is transform a person's heart. Laws can put gates, barriers around how far evil is to go. But what a law cannot do is take the evil, remove the evil, remove the desire for vengeance from your heart. Jesus is not saying, um, do more. He's illustrating for you and me, listen carefully, what a life looks like when the heart resides or when the law begins to reside in your heart. He's describing for you and me what a life looks like when a heart of stone has been removed and a what? A heart of flesh has been replaced with. What Jesus is doing in this text is illustrating for us a life in which, is what we've been talking about, transformational righteousness of the kingdom is growing through the Holy Spirit. He's describing for you and me a life in which we've been transformed by God and our life is immersed in kingdom living. He's simply describing what he's been talking about a lot, which is a righteousness that far surpasses that of the what? Pharisees. See what Jesus is saying? See what he's saying? He's saying, look, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. That's a, that's a, it's a just law. It gives you a chance, a sense of right and wrong. It puts barriers around vengeance and retaliation. But Jesus is saying to you and me, followers of Jesus, let me show you a more excellent way. Let me illustrate for you what happens, not just when you put laws so that you don't take vengeance, you don't do evil against someone who does evil. Let me show you what a life looks like when a desire for evil, a desire for vengeance, a desire for violence has been removed. Let me show you what a heart looks like. Let me show you what a life looks like. That doesn't just want to do eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But let me show you what a heart looks like. When someone slaps you, you turn the other. Let me show you what a life looks like when somebody says, go with me one mile, you actually go two. Let me show you what a life looks like when a heart has been transformed from the inside out because it's immersed in the 
kingdom. Are you with me? You hear me? He's not calling for more stringent laws. He's not saying do more. Let me put it this way. Jesus is literally saying here, I think, you don't have to walk two miles. You don't have to give them your shirt. But what would a life look like if you wanted to, you desired to, do good even to your enemies? Can I ask you something? What does your life look like? Has your life been immersed in the kingdom in such a way not only, well, I'm going to do these things because this is the right thing to do, but a desire for revenge, a desire for vengeance, a desire for evil has been removed. A desire for anger has been removed so that when you look at your enemies and you hear the command, love your enemies, you go, oh, okay. But rather, of course that's what I'd want to do. Of course that's what I'd want to do. you got to understand the context. This passage really doesn't make much sense unless you understand the context. And if you read anything about first century Palestine, you know that it was under the oppressive rule of who? The Romans. <laughs> read some of the, by the way, read early church history, and you just go, how did they even survive? Israel is living under an oppressive Roman rule, okay? And, 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 and people are, are, are rising up and in violent armed rebellion, and of course they get crushed immediately. But most live with this feeling, living under this incredibly oppressive Roman rule, that when you are faced with injustice, wrongdoing, evil done to you, you only had one of two options. And one was retaliation, violent retaliation. You kill me, I'm going to kill you. Or resignation, just accept it. Life, this is the way it is. There's nothing that I can do. By the way, this is where we're going. When you and I are wronged, when we have enemies, that's how we respond. We either want to retaliate or we want to what? Just resign ourselves and submit. And what Jesus is saying here is this, by using very familiar examples, listen very carefully. He said, that's not, those, those aren't your only two choices. Your options are not just to retaliate and enter into a cycle of hate and violence. Your options are not to retaliate. Isn't this our history? Isn't this the reason why this century is soaked in blood? Retaliation. You hurt me? Retaliation. Enter the cycle of violence. That's not your option. Nor is your option resignation. Just simply accept the injustice done to you. And here's the reason why. Here's the reason why Jesus says, don't just resign yourself and don't retaliate. He says, because ultimately those two choices are not loving. Can we all agree that it's not loving to kill somebody back? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It's not loving to kill them back. <laughs> Some of you are like, I don't know about that. <laughs> Trust me, it's not loving to kill somebody, okay? But it's also not loving to resign ourselves. And I'm going to talk about this more later. Do you know why? Because the loving thing to do is to ask, how can I change that evil in that person? How do I change the evil in that person? 
How do I keep that person from continuing to do what he or she is doing? The loving thing to do is to say, they're going to live with lots of people for the rest of their lives. And the loving thing to do is not just to resign and go, oh, well. The loving thing to do is, how can they be changed so that other people are not affected by their evil, by their injustice? That's the loving thing to do. It's not Christian to go, oh, well. The Christian thing to do is, how do I stop this person? If at all possible, to continue the cycle of evil and injustice. Then Jesus illustrates this, okay? Check this out. Verse 39. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Jesus is not saying... He is not encouraging submission to evil. That runs counter to everything he said and everything he did. Jesus is not encouraging submission to evil. I am greatly indebted to a guy named Walter Wink. Anybody heard of him? Scholar, theologian, ethicist. By the way, a little side trivia, Walter Wink. His son, Chris Wink, was one of the founders of the Blue Man Group. What do you know? <laughs> I have no idea what that means, but... Noel, are you here? Did you know that? No. Isn't that cool trivia? No, by the way, worked for Blue Man Group and got to see the show. It was an amazing show. So cool. Anyway. Walter Wink. This is when word study. Let's just kind of for about five minutes, you know, if you're kind of drifting, just concentrate for a little bit. Walter Wink. The word translated resist. Resist in Greek is antistemi. And did you know that it's a military term? It's a military term. Let me give you some examples. It literally means to draw a battle ranks against the enemy. It appears in the New Testament in places like Ephesians 6.13 where Paul says, Therefore, take the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand. The evil day having done all to stand. In the Old Testament, Greek version of the Old Testament called Septuagint, it refers to armed resistance and military encounters. And Josephus, a Jewish historian, uses that word commonly to refer to armed resistance. In other words, when you heard the word resist, it only meant one thing for people that day. Lethal violence. Lethal violence. And what Jesus is saying is don't resist violently to the evil person. You know what he's warning against? <laughs> He's warning against responding to evil in kind. He's saying, don't be made into the evil that you hate. Don't mirror the evil that you hate. So she's sitting there going, I don't do that. Really? Jesus is saying, if you've been hurt by gossip, don't turn around and go, I will gossip too. Jesus is saying, if your reputation has been hurt, don't mirror the evil by saying, you hurt my reputation, I'm going to ruin yours. Jesus, don't mirror the hate. Don't become the thing that you hate. In the Anybody? How often in our anger and bitterness and resentment do we wind up doing the same thing to the person that we vowed we would never become one? Just on a macro level, what the heck is war on terror? What is that? Outside of slaughter, those who slaughter. 
And the cycle of violence never ends. So if violent retaliation, Jesus says, is not the answer, then what is? I want to illustrate this for you. When Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to the other cheek also. Eddie. I know. <laughs> That's so funny. Did y'all see that? You guys see that? Uh, as soon as I said, I'm going to illustrate this for you. Eddie went, oh, no. You're one of these. I need you to come on, bro. Come on, bro. Come on, come on. Let's end okay. No, I'm not going to slap you, bro. Eddie. Not, we have visitors in this church. They're going to they're gonna think he's a violent man. Okay. All right, so. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them. It, here's the context, social context. First of all, in a fight, it were two equals that fought. In other words, masters never fought slaves. Okay? The context is not a fight because it's a slap. Here's another thing. In order for me in a fight to punch, to blow, to give a blow to, to, to Eddie, and by the way, it's a right hand because this is a right-handed culture. People use their left hand to do unclean tasks. So you never use your left hand. Okay? So if I'm going to, in a fight, punch Eddie with as a righty, where does it land? On his left cheek. Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right. So in order for me to slap somebody, it's not a blow. It's a what? It's a, it's a backhanded slap. Why is it important? He didn't even flinch. <laughs> He's like, you said you weren't going to hit me. I trust you. Of course I'm not going to hit you. <laughs> In other words, this was a common... A slap across the face. Listen, the intent is not to injure. The intent is to insult. The intent is not to do violence and to hurt. The intent is to humiliate. Slapping someone across the face was a way that people institutionalized inequality. Can we give Eddie a big hand? Yes. <laughs> Masters backhanded slap their slaves. In that culture, husbands to their wives, parents to children, Romans to Jews. It was a way of reinforcing inequality and injustice. And you didn't retaliate, because if you retaliated, the result was what? Death. So the way people responded was through cowering submission. You took it. But what does Jesus say? Does he say, take it like a man? No. Does he say, though, slap them right back? See how they feel? No. He says what? Turn the other cheek. Why? What is the significance of turning the other cheek? You're essentially by turning the other cheek, robbing the oppressor of their power to humiliate. You're saying to your oppressor, try again. 
What you intended to do didn't work. Why? I'm a human being just like you. You will not demean me. I am deserving of worth and dignity as much as anybody. Go ahead. That was what this passage signifies. Now, why is that important? Do you know how many great men and women in the history of the world have taken, and this is turning the other cheek, Jesus turned the other cheek, many have referred to as creative, loving, nonviolent resistance to transform their world. Martin Luther King Jr., I would argue, Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, who essentially looked at this and said, my options are not to retaliate. My options are not violent revolt, violent rebellion, or revenge. But my options also is not resignation. It's not just submission, passivity, withdrawal, or surrender to injustice. Turning the other cheek is not passive acceptance of brutality. It's a strategy for motivating others to change. It's a way of saying, I'm standing up for my rights. I'm speaking up for those who can't speak up. We all deserve equality. You will not dehumanize me. The same motivation, by the way, lies behind the command to go an extra mile. According to the law, Roman soldiers were legally allowed, legally allowed to make one of their subjects carry their 70, 80-pound packs, their gear for one mile. You couldn't. Make them carry another mile. That was against the law. Soldiers abused it all the time, of course. And Jesus says what? Surprise them. <laughs> After the mile is done, go, I'll do another mile. Why? He's saying, I'm going to willingly do this. Why? Your intent to dehumanize me? Your intent to rob me of my dignity? I will not let you do it. I will not let you do it. Guys, um, this will make no sense apart from the context. What do I mean? The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has essentially been describing the kingdom of God and the kingdom that comes in power. And you could just hear Jesus saying to his listeners, do you believe that the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, the reign of justice, reign of peace has entered the world? How do you view the world around you? Can I ask you? Church, and I need you to respond to me. Do you believe that the rule and reign of God has come into this world, that we live, Dallas Willard said, a God-bathed world? Do you believe, church, that injustice will not have the last word? Church, I'm asking you, do you believe that? Do you believe that ultimately justice will win? Do you ultimately believe that God will make all things right? That's Jesus' words. He was saying, if you believe that, then you will seek justice. Then you will seek righteousness. Then you will defend the orphans. Then you will defend the widows. You will not retaliate. You will not submit. You will speak up. Stand up. But your heart will have been so transformed that the motivation is not to injure, to hurt, to retaliate. Your motivation is for God and for the love of and the good of, yes, even the perpetrators. The question is not, do we stand up for justice? The question is not, do we stand up for righteousness? The question is not, do you confront the wrongdoer? Do you confront the enemy? The question is, why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? Why do you pursue it? Why do you pursue it? Do you pursue it? 
for righteousness sake, for justice. Do you pursue it because I love God's sake, because I love them sake? Or do you pursue it because of the hatred, the anger, the bitterness that I haven't forgiven? Has anger been drained out of you? Has bitterness been drained out of you? Has hurt been drained out of you? If it has not, Jesus says, He drives home one point. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and righteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's get really practical as we finish today. Really practical, but also really personal. How do you respond to someone who wrongs you? How do you respond to someone who hurts you? How do you respond to your enemy? Retaliation? Resignation? I'm going to ask, how many of us are more prone to retaliation? How many of us are more prone to just resignation? But even? The reason why this is so important is because for most of us, following the way of Jesus begins here. Recognize that both vengeance and resignation, or I'll call you the pummelers and then the avoiders, Let me speak to the pummelers first. For those of us that are pummelers, and I include myself as that, the end goal is not upholding truth and justice, is it? What is the end goal? I want to hurt you more than you hurt me. I want to destroy you more than you destroyed me. I'm going to do more harm to you than you are. Truth and justice is not even in the picture. Love of God, not even picture. Love of people, definitely not in the picture. Pummelers, we're going, that's how I respond. Then those of us avoiders, you think you're more Christian, don't you? Yes, you do. This is the reason why I'm not surprised. Well, like, avoiding is the Christian way. I just ignore them. I just delete them from my Facebook account. I just delete their contact information. I know you. When they email, I just ignore it. When I see them in church, I look the other way. Do you realize that avoiders are are not just not only not any better than pummelers, but actually you might be worse. Here's the reason why. Because you're actually fooling yourself into thinking that you're about truth, you're about justice. But here's the thing you need to realize. Listen very carefully. How are you about truth or justice when the end goal is simply excluding them from the community that you're involved in? How are you loving them when the loving thing to do is not to ignore them? The loving thing to do is what? To confront them, to get them to see truth. The loving thing to do is to go, they've got 30, 40 more years of this. And the loving thing to do is, as they hurt me, I don't want other people getting hurt by what they've done. The loving thing to do is to the best of their ability, confront them, get them to see truth, get them to see justice, get them to see their wrong ways and change. Change. 
But avoiders are simply saying, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to deal with that. You've done that to your parents. You've done that to your siblings. You've done that to your ex-husband's ex-wife. You're doing that now to even people in this church. You're not loving them. You're being selfish and self-centered. Why? The only thing you care about is your feelings. You guys, you guys, you guys. What the world needs for that person is to not continue to do what they're doing. But both in resignation and avoiding, we're not loving our enemies. We're not thinking about the good of the enemy. We're not thinking about the common good. We're just thinking about me and my needs. You know what God says? God says, then here's what you need to do. You need to forgive. And listen carefully. Forgiving is not just letting it go. The Bible says Don't pay back evil for evil. Don't vengeance. But the Bible also doesn't say avoid evil. The Bible says what? Overcome evil with what? With good. Let me say it again. Overcome evil with good. Don't avoid evil. Don't pay back evil for evil. Overcome evil with good. And the only way, the only way, the only chance we have to overcome evil with good is if your heart and my heart has been drained of anger, of bitterness, and hate. For most of us, this is how we deal with our enemies. We hate them on the inside. And then we say nothing on the outside. Can you relate? No. We hate them on the inside. And we say nothing on the outside. God says, here's what it means to overcome evil with good. Flip it. You love them on the inside. And you speak You love them on the inside. And you speak up. That's what it means to overcome evil with good. But the only way that we can do that is through forgiveness. Our heart is drained of anger and bitterness. Because if it hasn't, you know what we're going to do? I'm going to overcome evil with good. And you're going to go to them? And you know what we do? We always overreach. Why? Because the only thing you care about is getting them back. The only thing you care about is hurting them more than they hurt you. The only thing you care about is to make them feel small. And when you go without having your anger, bitterness, hate drained, you're going to overreach. You can fool yourself into going, no, I'm really doing it for them. No, you're not. You're doing it for yourself. Has your heart been drained of the anger, the bitterness, and the hate through forgiveness? Has your heart been drained of the bitterness, anger, and hate through forgiveness? Forgiveness is you deal with your heart and you deal with the anger before you deal with the wrongdoer. You forgive. Then you go and you confront. Then you go and you seek justice. Then you go and you get them to see truth. Get them to see what's right and see what's wrong. Why? Because that is the loving thing to do. That 
It's the loving thing to do. They might not respond. They might not listen to you. That's not the point. And what the result, the point is, have you done all that you can to train your heart to forgiveness so that you can overcome evil with good. <sighs> Miroslav Wolf is one of my favorite authors. Exclusion and Embrace it has to be a reading for every Christian, my personal opinion. He says you can't do justice, chew justice until you forgive the perpetrator. The choice is not, do I do justice, do I forgive? He says, you're never going to do justice unless you forgive. And if you refuse to forgive it's, or refuse to do justice, because you haven't forgiven. In other words, he's saying, if you want justice and nothing but justice, you're always going to get injustice. If you want true justice, you also have to have love. If you want true justice, you have to have love. Because if you don't, they kill 5,000 of us. We're going to kill 50,000 of them. And the cycle of violence and retaliation continues. Again, it doesn't have to be worldwide societal. Look, if your heart has been trained of anger, if they gossip against you, your response is not going to be, you need to stop. I love you, and I'm going to tell you, you need to stop. That's not the way of Jesus. You're going to go, and you're going to go. Who do you think overreach? If you want justice without injustice, you have to have love. You have to have love. How do we love? How do we love our enemies? How do we overcome evil with good? Ah, when with this? What ultimately drains the hate, the anger, desire for revenge? <laughs> Let me give you two options. One, try a little harder. How many of us were try a little harder? No. <laughs> What's the second option? It's got to be the gospel, Bethany. What other, what other solutions do we have? If not for the gospel, what other solutions do we have? Wolf says, and he's written a ton on forgiveness and loving those who hurt us. He says that the reason why we can't forgive is two primary reasons. One, we fear that if we forgive, we, we, we love, that if we grant the enemy, grant the perpetrator any humanity, any humanity, we extend them any compassion, any love, we fear that their evil will continue. Secondly, he says the other barriers, we deny the depth of our own sinfulness and we hide how much our own hearts are like those of the perpetrator. But the gospel, the cross, addresses both barriers. Both. How? First, the cross assures us that evil will not triumph, that justice will prevail. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards what? It bends towards justice. I got to ask one more time because I feel like I mean, sometimes I look, I'm standing up. I'm, I'm like, do you guys really believe that injustice will not have the last word? Do you really believe that in the death and resurrection of Christ, that the ruling reign of God has entered the world so that we know for sure, for sure, for sure that justice will prevail? Because if we believe that, then we don't have to be the executioner. We don't have to be the excuse. We don't have to go. If I don't make them pay, nobody else, because God says, at the end, all will be made right. 
You don't have to be the executioner. Why are you, why are you trying to be the executioner? Why are you saying to yourself, they will not get away with it. And if I let them get away with it, they will. Why are you doing that? Why? What kind of a world do you see? A world in which the rule and reign of God has entered? A world in which if I don't make things right, then nobody really. Secondly, the cross also shows us we're equally sinners and yet eternally loved. And what it does is it frees us to admit our common sinfulness with the perpetrator. You guys, I've talked about this before. If you are sustained in your anger towards somebody, you can't forgive, I'll tell you why. Because deep down inside, you're saying to yourself, I'm better than them. You understand what I mean, Cece? You're saying to yourself, how? You're saying to yourself, I would never do what they did. If you think that, you will never forgive. This isn't even deep theology. This isn't even deep insight. Can I just ask you this? Are you really saying, you know what? Even if I had their upbringing, even if I had their parents, even if I grew up in the neighborhood they grew up in, even if I had the influence and environment that they had, even if I had the unlucky breaks that they had, even if I had all the factors, I still wouldn't do what they did. Really? Really? It's not even deep theology. It's just common sense. Like, are you really willing to make that claim go, even if I did, I would, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Because I'm also realizing the family I grew up in, the environment, all that stuff, I had nothing to do with it. Nothing. It's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. The gospel reminds us we're equally sinners in need of his grace. If you can't forgive someone, it's because you believe at the core, I'm a good person, that's why God loves me. I'm a good person. If you believe I'm a good person, that's why God loves me. This is the reason why we talk about religiosity and gospel so much in this. If fundamentally you believe I'm a good person, that's why God loves me, you can never, ever admit your flaws. Why? Your whole identity is I'm a good person. How the heck are you going to admit that you're not a very good person? If fundamentally you go, I'm a good person, that's why God loves me, you will never forgive. Never. How can you when it requires you admitting that you're not a good person? But the cross also reminds us that we're eternally loved. The Bible says that even though we've wronged him, persecuted him, rejected him, he forgives us of all our wrongdoings and loves us unconditionally. And unless you're so affirmed by the knowledge of God's grace, and you don't feel the need to be angry, you're not going to forgive him. It's as simple as this. It's just going, how can I not forgive this person for their three wrongs when God has forgiven me for my three billion wrongs? How do I hold a grudge against this person when I was an enemy too? And I would, I should have gotten what I deserve, and yet I didn't. Why? Because I'm a good person? No, because of what? Jesus. Jesus. Look at what Jesus has done for you until it melts the anger down. He might not get rid of it right away, but look at Jesus in the cross until it melts your anger down, until it gives you emotional wealth so you don't need to be angry. Now, I'm almost done. Some of you guys will sit there and go, that's the most impractical sermon I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Who's going to do that? That's the most impractical thing I've ever heard in my life. Do you realize if you just forgive somebody like that, they're going to step all over you? First of all, we said for the last 30, 40 minutes, it's not about letting somebody step all over you. So let's just get that out of the way. And secondly, can I ask you, what's more impractical? To forgive or what C.S. Lewis said? To not forgive and to hold a grudge 
and to lock your heart in a little casket where you're protected from all harm, all hurt, and you lock your heart in a little casket, and then you throw away the key. And C.S. Lewis says, oh, yeah, and then your heart will never get broken. Your heart will never get disappointed. Your heart never will get crushed. But in that little casket, your heart becomes unbreakable, impenetrable, unredeemable. Which is more practical? To forgive? Or to become so hard, so callous, so cold, so incapable of love and trust that you slowly, slowly, slowly allow your heart and that circle to get tighter and tighter, which is where some of you are today. Which is more impractical, to live this life of Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit or to go, I will never get hurt. You tell me. Cece, we're almost done. In 1956, a 20-something Baptist preacher in Montgomery, Alabama, the various circumstances, found himself as a leader of the bus boycott that began, and Rosa Parks refused to give up her own seat. As the bus boycott progressed, Martin Luther King Jr. started hearing rumors that the white authorities in Montgomery, Alabama were out to get rid of him. And in 1956, Montgomery, Alabama, when white folks wanted to get rid of you, <laughs> you know what that meant. Came to a head on the night of January 27th, 1956. Story goes that Dr. King was in his house sleeping with his wife and two-month-old baby girl. When the phone rang, he picked up the phone. And for various reasons, I can't repeat what the guy said on the phone, but according to the count, basically, the other person on the other line said, if you don't leave town in three days, we're going to kill you and your entire family. Dr. King hung up the phone. Everybody was asleep, couldn't go to sleep, made a cup of coffee, sat at the kitchen table with his hands, head buried in his hands, crying out, crying out to God and saying, God, I'm scared. I'm paralyzed. He literally says he was paralyzed with fear, utterly paralyzed with fear. Then, 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 something happened that changed the course of his life and I would argue the course of history. As he was sitting there confessing his fears and anxiety to God, he said that he felt a stirring in his soul that he never felt before and he heard this voice. It was an audible voice, but a voice. And it said, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. And he says, the voice promised over and over and over, I will never leave you. I will never leave you. I will never leave you. And the count says that he had this supernatural encounter with the living God. And what he sensed was God with him, God for him, God drawing near to him. And it changed his outlook, his mission, and his perspective about everything. And four days later, as he was speaking at a rally for the boycott, around 9.15 p.m., a young man burst through the doors of his church and announced to everybody there that King's house had just been firebombed where his wife and daughter were. He ran out of the house. I think we have a picture of that. Can you put that up? He ran out of the house street and found... His home still on fire. The police were there. The fire officials were there. You know, else was there? A large mob of angry black citizens from Montgomery, Alabama, with 
guns and rifles and baseball bats, ready to riot, ready to kill. And what had been done by the clan to their leader. And Dr. King stood on the burning porch. He looked out at the angry crowd and he preached the sermon. And this is part of the excerpt from that sermon. I want you to love your enemies. Be good to them. Love them and let them know that you love them. What we are doing is right. What we are doing is just. And God is with us. Go home with this glowing faith, with this radiant assurance, with love in our hearts, with faith and with God in front. We cannot lose. And a little bit later, he would write this, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hearing some of the accounts from people that were there, a woman reportedly said that that night could have been the darkest night in Montgomery, Alabama's history, and the streets could have been run with blood. Her words, but we sense the Holy Spirit. A white police officer recounting the story said that had it not been for that black preacher, we would have all been killed. Let me ask you something. Did a law do that? What brings about that kind of transformative power? The law or something of another world? Maybe the rule and reign of God that comes in power to those who enter it. Who says he's done that for me. He's done this for me. He's done this to reconcile the world to himself. Forgive them, they know not what they do. Has it melted your heart? Has it melted my heart? Just imagine this city filled with kingdom people in whom hate, anger, and bitterness has been trained. Imagine a city filled with people for whom when somebody says, go with me one mile, they say, I'll go two. Imagine a city in which people say, will you share, you radically pour out your life and all that you have. This city, this world is hungry to see this other world that Jesus came to establish. May you be kingdom ambassadors that will live your life this week in the rule and reign of God. May they see radical love and radical sacrifice from your life and my life. In that, may they see the death and resurrection, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great week, church.